me invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Looking this morning at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. If you have not brought a Bible with you this morning, our uh, passage is on page 61 in the uh, Pew Bibles, in the Pew Racks in front of you. We are coming this morning to one of the most uh, famous of all. Uh, Bible passages, the uh, Ten Commandments. The scene here is has been Israel at Mount Sinai. There has been uh, preparation uh, for God to come down and give the uh, Ten Commandments, and now we see that God is going to speak these uh, Ten Commandments. To Israel Today we're going to be looking at commandment number one, uh, so just verses one through three of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, how we thank you that you reveal yourself to your people in your word. You reveal your holiness, your majesty, and you reveal to us what you require of us. And our God, we pray that you would write your word on our hearts. We pray that you would pour out your spirit that we might be enabled to do what you command. So be with us today as we look into your word. Help us, O God, to obey, uh, to love you with all of our heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There have been many... Ten Commandment controversies over the last several years, especially we've seen places where the Ten Commandments have been taken down, public places. Uh, many of you remember several years ago where in Oklahoma where the uh, monument at the uh, Capitol building was removed in the middle of the night. Uh, that caused a, a scandal and an uproar in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, the Alabama uh, Chief Justice Roy Moore, Roy Moore, love or hate him, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, so it's suspended because he defied the federal court because he would not remove uh, the ten, a copy of the Ten Commandments that he had uh, put up uh, in the from the federal court. And there are many others as well over the years with regard to the, the Ten Commandments. Why are there so many objections to the Ten Commandments? We as Christians might, might wonder. I, by the way, went online to find out. How else do you find out why there are objections to things? You go online these days. Of course, we can understand with the first four why there would be objections, 
Muslims would have a problem with the first four. Atheists would have a problem with the first four. Even some Christians actually have a problem with the fourth commandment, the the Sabbath commandment. Even some Christians have a problem with that one. But why five through ten, we might ask, which is our relationships with one another? Well, I found websites that said, well, you know, sometimes adultery might be a good thing, especially if someone's in an unhappy marriage, some websites said. What about stealing? Well, take something you need if you can't afford it, especially from the, the rich, the old uh, Robin Hood theory, I guess. And what's the big deal about coveting? I read online. Uh, wanting what you don't have, it may even lead to productivity, some have said. Well, we'll deal with all of those later, those uh, second half of the commandments. Right now, here's how Jesus sums up the law in Matthew chapter uh, 22. A lawyer uh, comes to him, and of course this is not a lawyer uh, in the sense of uh, Jeff or uh, Brian or Lawrence or Rebecca, those kinds of lawyers uh, that we have in our church. This is a lawyer in uh, a Jewish sense, an expert in the law of God, the Old Testament law of God, as here in the Ten Commandments and beyond. A lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law, or the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And indeed, that is how the Ten Commandments are divided. Commandments 1 to 4 teach us how to love God. Commandments 5 to 10 teach us how to love other people. The Ten Commandments are given to us basically to teach us how to love. Love God and love other people. There's a song When I was growing up, a popular song when I was younger, I can't remember how long ago it was, uh, was a song that said, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. This is what God does here in the Ten Commandments. He shows us what love is as he gives these commandments to us. Dr. Currid, our former uh, one of our pastors here from the past, for those of you who are new, who's also written many commentaries, uh, Old Testament scholar. Dr. Currid says there's some significant things to note here as we come to these uh, Ten Commandments. First of all, 
They are revealed directly from God without the mediation of any human being. They come directly from God. They are written, they're going to be written later by the very finger of God. We're going to see that uh, in chapter 31, verse 18. It's repeated in chapter 32, verses 15 and 16. He goes on to point out they are they, they were written in stone. In other words, never to be erased. They are permanent commands of God. They are written on both sides of the tablet. They are, in other words, to be no additions. They fill up the tablet. So in other words, as he sums up, they are prescriptive, perpetual, and eternally binding. Prescriptive, perpetual, and eternally binding. And yet, as we saw last week, they are based on God's grace. Based on God's grace. That's what we saw as we studied Exodus chapter 19. If you remember back in 19.4 in particular, uh, it's based on what God did for his people. 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus, redemption, then law. It's not you're saved by keeping the law. I've saved you. Now here is how you should live. And again, this is how God begins the giving of the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 2, or verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, redemption, salvation. Now you shall have no other gods before me. He begins the commandments. All right. I am the Lord your God. Same exact words that God had said earlier to Israel. I am Lord. I am Yahweh. Same words back in chapter 6, verse 2. Back in chapter 12, verse 12. We won't turn there, but those are directly related to God saying, I will deliver you. And he has done it. This is the one who has delivered, giving them the law, entering in to a covenant, a binding covenant, his promise to be their God and taking Israel to be his people. In other words, what we see here is the giving of the law is gracious. It is a gracious act on the part of a gracious God. And we cannot understand God's law without understanding that. As we say in our circles, in reform circles, this is part of God's larger covenant of grace that will ultimately culminate in the new covenant 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. To put it a different way, this law is given for the good of his people. Given for the the good of his people. As I said last week or the week before, one of my seminary professors, the, uh, the, the wonderful French theologian, Dr. Roger Nicole, you, you cannot break the law of God. You can only break yourself on the law of God. It is good for us, and God gives it as part of our as part of his grace. He doesn't give the law to bind. He doesn't give the law to restrict. He gives the law to continue to set them free. His laws, his rules are for our good. Our obedience is for our good. I often said to our kids, and I think I probably said said it on at least one, if not several occasions, to each one of all six of them, that rebellion is going to lead to a sad life. Rebellion is going to lead to a sad life. And when I disciplined them, and by the way, never in anger, never Discipline parents, your children, in anger. Get your emotions under control. When I disciplined them, I would always say, I'm doing this because I love you. Because I love you. And you need to learn to obey. We teach obedience where they're good to walk in God's ways. The Apostle Paul said the law is holy and righteous and good. That's in the New Testament. Paul, the great apostle of grace, says the law is is holy and righteous and good. We're not saved by the law, because, but we keep the law because it honors God and it is good for us. And by it we reflect God's character and bring glory to God. But more than that, keeping God's law shows our love for God. This is in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4.19. We read this, we love because he first loved us, again, based on what God has done, as we see here in Exodus 20. That's John, 1 John 4.19, but he goes on in 5.3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That's the New Testament. We love because he first loved us. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So here we have them. That's our introduction to these Ten Commandments. And notice here, and I'll say this uh, about both verse two and uh, both verse two and verse three, the you is singular. It's interesting here. He's giving them collectively to his people, but the you 
is singular, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's singular. We might expect a plural there because he brought them collectively out, but each one he has brought out individually. You, individually, shall have no other gods before me. It highlights our individual salvation and also our individual responsibility. So what are these commandments that we, each one, are to keep uh, that demonstrate our love for God? That in many ways set us free. The first one is absolutely foundational. And we can say that all the others kind of hinge on, on this one. This first foundational one. You shall have no other gods before me. Before we get into the meat, let me, let's look at uh, some, some details here. First of all, before me. What does this mean? You shall have no other gods before me. It does not mean there is kind of a pecking order with God at the top. Uh, it's not like you can have other gods, but as long as God is the top one, that's okay. No, it means before me means before my face. You can have no other gods in front of me, over against me. No other gods, period, in other words. I and I alone can be God. He is demanding exclusive loyalty here. In fact, there are no other gods. There are no other gods. There are so-called gods There are things that we make our gods, things that we make our idols. As G.I. Packer puts it in his wonderful small little book on the Ten Commandments, your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. That's your God. Love, seek, worship, serve, allowed to control you, or as the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry puts it, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God is your idol. Are there things that you delight in or depend on more than God? That's a hard question, isn't it? Delighting in things, depending on things, more than God. Sometimes we have to say, you know, sometimes I do depend on this or that. Or delight in this or that more than God. And that becomes an idol to us. Does God really come first? How do we know? Let me take us through four things. I got four things to examine to know whether God really comes first 
in our hearts and in our lives. That we do not have any other gods before God. First of all, our affections. Look at your affections. Again, what do you love? What do you delight in? Scripture tells us you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Do you delight to come to worship? Is that one thing that you delight in? To be with God's people, to be in God's presence, to worship God. Do you delight to read scripture? Do you delight to be with God in prayer? Or do other things always just kind of get in the way? Can you say with the psalmist, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for you. What allows, what do you allow to interfere with worship? Do you rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances in your life? Do you delight in using God's gifts? Christy and I just recently rewatched one of our favorite movies, Chariots of Fire. Wonderful uh, movie, especially with about Eric Little, who said, When God made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. There's a wonderful Biography by Duncan Hamilton of Eric Little. What's even more impressive and beautifully written is his service in a uh, Japanese prison camp. How he delighted to serve even in that prison camp. The delight was not just in his running, but even in, in prison as he served other prisoners. Do you feel his pleasure at at work, in service, in service to the church, in service to others? How about in your beliefs? Examine your beliefs. Mark Dever, in his his one of his books, talks about leading a, a doctoral seminar. And he made a comment about, about God in this seminar. And one of the people in the seminars, a guy unfortunately named Bill, um, I actually did go to seminary with Mark Dever. We were classmates at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. This was not me. This was a doctoral student. Bill liked to think about God differently that he was a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but not overpowering, ever so resourceful, but never interrupting. 
Bill concluded by saying, this is how I like to think about God. And uh, Dever responded, my reply was perhaps somewhat sharper than it should have been. Thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself that we are concerned to know about what God is really like. Sometimes we do make God in our own image, not the image in the Bible, but our own image. There is a saying, an old saying, that God made man in his image, and ever since then, man has been trying to return the favor. We like to make man in our image what we think God should be like, not what Scripture tells us he's like. Remember, God is here at Sinai, as we have seen in chapter 19, in his awesome, terrifying majesty. And when we come to the end of these commandments, the Israelites are going to say, Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us, because they are trembling with fear, as we see in verses 18 and following. How do we think about God? How do we think about God? Do we create other gods as we think about the God of the Bible? Do we create God in our own image? We have the Bible. We in our congregation have the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's helpful. But when things don't go your way, do you rail against God? When you face difficulties in your marriage or at work, do you ask God, why did you put me here? I deserve to be happy. Michael Horton, who's also written a wonderful book on the Ten Commandments, writes this in Paganism. Gods exist to make people happy and provide moral examples of the good life. And sometimes we come close to paganism, don't we, in our thoughts about God. Fourth, we can examine our fears. When we feel or fear failure or fear sickness, we are on the throne. I am on the throne. When we fear man, man is on the throne, not God. Our fears reveal who we are trusting. In difficult times, do we trust our resources? Do we trust our money? Who do we trust? Whom do we trust? In times of fear in times of trial. In practice, look at our daily practice. Whom do we serve? Where do we devote our time? Our work and our vocation is good. That's what God calls us to do. But again, whom do we serve? Once again, J.I. Packer writes this, All the 101 things I have to do each day 
and the 101 demands on me that I know I must try to meet will all be approached as ventures of loving service to him, and I shall do the best I can in everything for his sake. And he goes on to say this, Approaching life for the purpose of pleasing God gives me new energy. Self-absorbed resentments dissolve and zest for life Happiness in doing things and love for others all grow great when God comes first. Zeal, when we do them for God, we do our work better. And other things, as he says here, uh, resentments, etc., dissolve. And he ends by saying, wake up and throne God and live. I love that line. This is an all-or-nothing proposition. That's why it's first. No other gods before me, all or nothing. Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. The Lord alone is God. He demands our full, our complete obedience. And by the way, it doesn't change in the New Testament. It doesn't change in the New Testament. Some may say, well, the Old Testament's law, the New Testament's grace. It doesn't change in the New Testament. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. Christ who died says, take up your cross and follow me. When you take up a cross, you follow on the way to your death. You're laying down your life to follow Jesus Christ. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote earlier in the 20th century, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the call here. One God. One God. No other gods before me. One God that we follow, that we live for, that we lay down our lives for, that we give ourselves fully to follow as he commands. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that you indeed are a God of great grace, that you are our God, that you have redeemed us, that you have saved us and you give us a good law that is good for us, O God. And so, O God, we thank you that you have made us yours. And so help us to make you preeminent in our lives, our one God, who we love and adore, not because we are, not because, O God, you have seen that we are good, but because you are good and great, and you have called us to yourself. So, O oh God, we love you. Help us, O oh God, to increase our love for you day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.